This morning's passage is about Christ's example of humility. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let us receive these words of instruction with eagerness. Thank you, Emily. All right. Good morning, church. Good morning. Yes, good morning. <laughs> so we're going to <laughs> we're gonna continue our um, uh, the overall series. Of letters from Roman jail. St. Paul or Apostle Paul, he was imprisoned and, uh, in Rome, and he's writing uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon to us. And again, there's an urgency there. And so we finished the book of Ephesians, and we are moving to Philippians. And Pastor Linda uh, gave us, uh, started out uh, last Sunday talking about uh, beginning the book of Philippians and introduced that book, book to us. And uh, today I want to continue that in uh, chapter 2. Um, again, uh, I just want to uh, set this up, the fact that St. Paul is writing this because he doesn't know if he was, is, if he was going to get out of jail or if, he, or if he was going to die. He didn't know at that moment. Later on, we find out they released him, but he, at that time, he didn't know. So he's writing these letters so that the church will continue with or without him. So there is that urgency. And so uh, Philippians really carry that same type of uh, ethos and that, that passion and that feeling. So that's what I want to bring out today as we look at uh, chapter 2. So um, whereas, uh, here's a Latin word, magnum opus, the greatest work of the St. Paul that he'd written in the New Testament, a lot of people would argue it's the book of Romans. And I think uh, there's a good argument for that. But, but one can also make an argument that the, that the magnum opus, if you will, for, of the greatest Christian hymn or, or poetry that is in the New Testament, and maybe even throughout the Bible, is this particular text that we read today, that Emily read, 
verses 6 through 11, the one that we recited uh, in our assurance of pardon, that, that poetry that describes Jesus as the humble, obedient servant. I mean, that this poetry, it, it encapsulates not only about who Jesus is, but how he lived, which is a uh, uh, direction or uh, prescription for us in how we ought to live. So those few verses is packed. It, it, is, it is a great poetry or, or a hymn of uh, Christ, Christology, study of God, of Christ that is, and also application for us. So, so I want to I want to take that particular portion and I want to uh, uh, apply it to us because I believe that that was penned here. Even though uh, Saint Paul wrote this down, uh, scholars also uh, have um, maybe maybe thought that that was the early Christian hymn that the churches uh, regularly recited and saying. So there's much here about that. So I want to elaborate that, all right? But let me go back and review quickly uh, what Pastor Linda kind of brought up in chapter one and, and other things in, in chapter one. When, when, when St. Paul is writing this, uh, people in the first century, everybody knew that Paul was in prison at that time. And, uh, you know, again, there's that anxiety. Is the leader of the movement of this church is he going to be here to lead the rest of the church movement, or will he die? And, and what we find here is that as St. Paul is writing this in Philippians, paradoxically, he's not freaked out. <laughs> and in fact, uh, what he's doing is uh, he's, he's inspiring confidence while he is in jail so that the believers and brothers and sisters in the faith all throughout Asia Minor and Galatia and all the regions that churches were planted to, it is inspiring them to live this incredible faith despite a hostile world. And St. Paul is here is so optimistic. That's where the paradox comes in. You might die, and yet he's so optimistic. And, and in chapter 1, what you find is that, I mean, this guy's nuts. He says... <laughs> If I'm executed, it's a sad thing, but he's like, that's a good, that's a, a, a good deal for me. He says, I'll be free from suffering, I'll be with Jesus, and I personally would prefer that. However, if he's released, that's good too, because then he'll keep working, and uh, uh, the gospel will continue to spread, and it'll be good for you that I still live, <laughs> so that we can continue this journey together. You know, because the gospel work has not been, is not complete yet. So for him, dying for Jesus is not a sacrifice. If, if um, you know, um, Caesar kills him, it's fine. It's not a sacrifice. However, he's saying staying alive and serving uh, others and continue the work of the gospel. That's the real work. So, so this, is, this is the mind of St. Paul. He's, you know, others would think he's crazy, but this is him. And, and I want to hold on to that kind of thought because I don't hear too many Christians talk like that these days, you know? We're so concerned about living so much and being happy in this world so much, we don't think about the corollary. And the corollary, the corollary to this is that 
while we're living then, yes, we want to live, and that's great, but what's the purpose for being in this world? You know, the way Mia was praying, it's sort of like God is speaking to us, you know. How are we living in this world? For what purpose are we here for as the beloved child of God, right? Yes, we love life. We want to live. That's great. That's a great thing. But how are we going to be living in this world as a child of God? You know, pandemic is here and it's still here and hope, hopefully it'll turn into endemic soon. But today, you know, people, and especially, you know, a couple of years ago, people are so freaked out about the coronavirus because it could kill us. And that's true. It's a, it's, a, it's a real scare and I get it. But rather than thinking about, you know, uh, uh, if we're going to die or not and freaking out about that, the question is, how are we going to live if we don't die from the pandemic? I, have, I don't hear too many people talking about that. You know, for the majority of us, and I thank God that we are spared from this pandemic, and, and, and for Christians, you know, to avoid um, death and blessing, is that the reward? Is that God's blessing that we're here and we didn't die? You know what I mean? You know, some, maybe some of you came out of the hospital, awakened from a coma, freed from the ventilators, right? And we avoided death. Okay, that's, that's amazing news. Then the question is, how will we live out the remaining years that we have here? That's, really, that's Paul's question. So is dying from COVID the worst thing ever? Because that's what you hear on the news. And as a believer, St. Paul would differ because there is great optimism. And he would ask, uh, which is better, die or live, you know? So this, the rest of this book, and we're going we're gonna, to uh, press through this, and the rest of the book in Philippians has this joyful and this grateful tone. Despite the real uh, pressure of and the threat of death for St. Paul and the persecution of the church. Those things were real at that time in the first century. And so therefore, if I can summarize the core of the message uh, of the book of Philippians, it's something like this. Because the Philippians received Jesus as Messiah and Savior, because the Philippians became a Christian, in other words, the people of God there are now new citizens of a new kingdom. And their life, therefore, must be shaped by Jesus, who is their king. And this Jesus um, not only invites persecution from Rome because, you know, the, the kingship war is always going on, but the people of God, the people in Philippi, they must now live out their Christianity. And here's the key word I'm going to repeat over and over. That not only they must live out their Christianity, but it must be consistent with the good news. Their new life now, because now they live, their Christian lives must be consistent with the good news as the citizens of the kingdom of God. That's it. That's what I think uh, St. Paul is writing here. All right? Just like he might live or die. Christians might live or die. But if you're living... Are you going to be consistent in the way we live with the good news that he's given us? Because we're children of God. We belong to a new kingdom. So I've been thinking. So in my early 30s, before I got married, um, I've been wrestling with that question, you know, because um, I guess I was coming out of seminary and like, what am I going to do with my life? 
And, uh, you know, with the remaining of the time that I have and uh, time here on earth, um, what, what, what am I going to do? And I've been thinking about this not only in my early 30s, but have been doing a lot of editing ever since throughout the years. And this was my plan, all right? This is before I met Hyunsu. This is what my goal was, uh, to be a pastor, serve at a local church, uh, learn how to preach, and, and to the best of my ability, preach faithfully God's word, uh, get married, uh, have kids, and uh, raise them in a Christian home, uh, teach them about Jesus, and when they're old enough, send them off. <laughs> if you want to go to school, go to school. Maybe they get married. Hopefully they get married. And I'll have grandchildren and spoil them rotten. And after I spoil my grandchildren rotten, then I could retire, right? And, uh, and if the second coming doesn't come quickly, then I'll die first and get to heaven. What a deal, <laughs> you know? Not a bad plan. And I look at that plan. It's not that bad because in it, my plan was not to secure a financial uh, security for me by robbing a bank or maybe finding a new hobby, you know, uh, laundering money for the cartels, you know, or, or a backup plan to join the Taliban if I'm disappointed with Christianity. So there was nothing like that. So it's a good plan, right? So, and this is, you know, nothing wrong with that kind of uh, having a good life and, and getting married and retiring and all that because that's what we do in the Christian West. All right, you don't have to be a Christian, but, but the West uh, uh, culture, Western culture teaches us that. And particularly but after, for the Christian, we're, we're focused upon living a good life and going to heaven. However, and if that's your goal too, that's great, because that was my goal too. However, the older I got and, and um, the more I began to study the Bible more seriously, I became more convicted. And here's that phrase again. Living consistently with the good news that, that started to take shape. And I discovered that when I look at the Bible and study it, particularly in passages like Philippians, Jesus gave us another vision in how to live this life. So I had to edit, <laughs> had to edit tremendously how I would use the remainder of my life that I have here on earth. You know, in my downtime, Sunday night, Hard day's work. I like to go in the basement and watch uh, my sci-fi shows. And on Netflix, there was one particular show called The Travelers. Have you seen The Travelers? You don't have to watch it, but it was, it was really interesting. You know, um, people from the future will travel through time to the present, but not through human, I'm sorry, not through time machines, but through inhabiting people's bodies. Sounds creepy, right? But what happened is people in the future have some technologies that, you know, there's, of course, in the future is always disastrous, right? So they want to go back to that particular time to stop that event, like killing Hitler or something, right? So they would, but before they inhabit a human body, uh, they don't just take any life, but a person that's just about to die. And what's interesting is every time they inhabit a body, they, they do the countdown. Oh my gosh, you know, you have uh, one more minute left and it goes down and, and before the time expires, the, uh, the, the people in the future comes in and inhabits the body into the present and they say, I'm traveler one, two, three, four, <laughs> you know, and they have a particular mission to finish. And they are living in that new body in a new borrowed time, and their job is to fulfill a mission. And that's, the, that's what the travelers said. So who cares about, the, about, the, about the, uh, the, the story? But 
But what I've been, I've been fascinated, and I'm still fascinated about the time ticking before my life expires. Tick, tick, tick. <laughs> if you're watching that clock the whole time, you get paralyzed and paranoid. But I was thinking, like, what if I, what if I knew when I will die? When, what if I knew that time, the minute, maybe the day and the year, if I only had X amount of time left, right? And maybe you probably say, say you knew. The question is, how would you live for the, re- the that time that we are allotted? How would you live those that, that, that remaining life? That's, that's the big question. How will we make our life count, right? How, how do we know then, how do we know um, when that time comes, all right? How do we know that we lived well? And as a Christian, how do we know that we lived it consistently with the good news? All right, big question. You know, um, Yesterday, uh, uh, I went to a funeral. A brother passed away, um, and we knew him from this, the previous church that we were at. And his story is fascinating because uh, while we were there, uh, uh, you know, he contracted lung cancer, and it was it was bad. It was like coughing up blood, and and I don't know what stage it was, but it wasn't good. And so, uh, church rallied around him. We prayed for him, and some others really spiritually pray for him and took care of him and the family. And lo and behold, uh, not only did he physically get healed, which was the miracle, and some of you guys heard that story, that testimony, uh, but, uh, but he became a Christian too, which was the greatest news of all. So he, he's a doctor, so he stopped his practice and he just served God and he was growing like leaps and bounds. And then uh, got the shocking news that, you know, he just suddenly passed, and it was really shocking. And appeared, appeared that his cancer came back. And then and the more I heard about uh, the situation, the circumstances in which he passed, it just grieved my heart. I saw the, the wife, and, and, I, and I just, my heart just went out to her because the last remaining moments of his life, he was stuck in a church board fighting politics, yelling about this and that. And it's just like, oh, are you serious? If you knew that last week was your last day on earth, why in the world are you stuck at a board meeting talking about things that have no consequence to the kingdom? Anyway, it's really upsetting, you know? Really, I mean, so I don't know if we struggle with making our life count. Uh, and, and, you know, we don't know when that's going to be, that time. And asking, is my life worth it? Have I lived the remaining of my time well? Consistent with the gospel. The late Chuck Chuck Colson, some of you may know his name, he wrote a book called The Good Life. And he told a story about James Ryan. James Ryan, and he tells the story this way. James Ryan was at the twilight years of his life, and he's walking uh, cautiously, slowly to a gravesite, the Normandy American Cemetery. He was with his wife. He was with his children, uh, adult children, and his, and his uh, grandchildren. And, and, uh, and he goes to the tombstone of John W. Miller. That was his captain, and he died, dated June 3rd, 13th. 1944. And as he's leading up to that tomb, 
uh, to pay his respects to his captain. He was filled with um, trepidation, um, silence, a lot of contemplation, um, so that he can go to the gravesite and to ask his late captain one question that's been looming over his conscience over all these years. The backstory is this, on D-Day, on the beaches of Normandy, Captain Miller and his, and his men, they, they uh, came. You see this? This thing is called a Higgins boat. Those, some of you know this. This is how, you know, uh, uh, the soldiers will get to uh, the beaches, and this is how they got to the beaches of Normandy. And Captain Miller and, 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 and his uh, um, uh, crew came out, and, and usually what happens is when the enemy lines are there, they're ready for you coming out of the Higgins boat. Uh, you know, the Germans are there, and they're just, you're, you're a shooting target. And 50% of soldiers who come out of that do not make it. But somehow, um, Captain Miller and his crew did. Now, Steven Spielberg made the film. It's called Saving Private Ryan, if you remember that. Captain Miller and the squad, uh, they somehow got alive safe, got out safely. And they had one mission. Passing uh, the German border, he, their job was to find uh, one paratrooper. His name was James Ryan. And his job was to bring him back home alive. Mind you, this is at the height of World War II, you know, right, on uh, enemy lines. The chief's staff of army, his name was General George C. Marshall, he personally uh, made this order to pull out Private Ryan of the war. Why? Because Ryan's older two brothers died in another company during the war. His third brother had been killed in action in New Guinea. And he, so, so this general was sympathizing, saying that losing three sons were enough for any mother to contribute to the war. And so it's a dramatic story. You can watch Saving Private Ryan again. And there's casualty all around. Out of the seven squads that went to save one guy, only two survived. And the dramatic end was that Captain Miller did get hit in the back. He was dying. His last words to Private Ryan was, James, go earn it. He says, earn this. That was his last words. And he was 21. I mean, what a burn, right? And uh, James Ryan, now he, I don't know how old he was when Chuck Colson wrote the book. But uh, James Ryan, at the final season of his life, the twilight leader with his family, all wondering, just, ask, just trying to ask that one question to Captain Miller, you know? Um, and, and I just want to read an excerpt because the way Colson writes is so wonderful. He says, he, that is James Ryan, looks at his wife and please, because they're at the website, and again, he's just, he's, he's, you know, his life, you know, he's looking back and he's wondering, he's, and he looks at his wife and he pleads and he says, tell me that I've led a good life. Confused by his request, she responds with a question. She says, what? He has to know the answer. He tries to articulate it again. Tell me I'm a good man. The request flutters her, but his earnestness make her think uh, better off better. I'm sorry. But his earnestness makes her think better of putting it off. With great dignity, she says, you are. His wife turns back to the other family members whose stirring says they're ready to leave. And before James Ryan joins them, he comes to full attention 
and he salutes his fallen comrade. Again, that's a, a huge burden for James Ryan because his life has been extended because five men died so he could live. And he's wondering, did I make every day of my life count, right? How can you live up to a, a, any man's request, much less a dying man's request, to earn the rest of your life? Now, I mention that because I've been editing the response to that kind of question, not because of James Ryan, because I've had my own moments. And, and I've been editing that kind of question, you know, uh, how am I going to live the rest of my life here on earth? I've come to uh, discover that when I discovered that Jesus set a, a, a vision for our lives. And, and, um, and it just clicked. You know, Jesus would say, here's, here's the vision for your life, Christians. Very simple. Live consistent with the good news. That's it. First of all, find out what the good news is and, and dig through that and live it out consistently. You know, um, I have to ask similar questions. And these are some of the questions that, kind of using James Ryan's question, these are questions that, that I want to propose to you and to myself. Have I been a faithful follower of Jesus? Again, we don't know when that time is going to be, right? Have I been a faithful follower of Jesus towards the end? Have I lived a life worthy of Jesus' approval? Not any man's approval, but Jesus' approval. I know I, we can't earn heaven. We know that. I hope you know that. We can't earn our life or our salvation. But having said that, have I made the use of my life so that the Father will be pleased with me? And we can go on and on. And these are important questions because we need to wrestle with that sometime in your life. Otherwise, you know, every day won't be intentional. So for us today, eventually we will have to ask these questions somehow. So I'm asking them for you right here in this message. But St. Paul provides a way to emphatically help us answer this. And the answer is emphatically, yes! Can you... Consciously and, and in your heart, say even right now, yes, I have been faithful. I have lived a life worthy, right? And if I die today, right now, our Father will be pleased with the way I lived so far. Can we say that? And, and St. Paul says you can absolutely say yes, a resounding yes, without hesitation and with full confidence. You want to know? Of course you do. A lot of you say yes. Good. But in case some of you are not so sure, the answer is real simple. And it's the text that we read. And the answer is this. Make Jesus the center of gravity of your life. The center of gravity. What is the center of gravity? Show us this picture. In physics, uh, uh, center of gravity is, the, is this point. It's an imaginary point on an object of a body of matter where the total weight of that, that, that body uh, may be thought to be concentrated in that one point. So that's why you, that, that is the center of gravity, all right, for, for that particular object. So let me spiritualize this. For Jesus to be the center of gravity of our lives, you must identify the core, the concentrated identity of who you are in Christ. That's the good news. 
So find out how that applies to your life. And once you get that, you make decisions from that center of gravity. And when you, when you understand that, then you live the Christian life from that core, from that center of gravity of who Jesus, of who Jesus is. I mean, that's kind of the, the simple loaded answer. Let me dissect that a little bit. What does that core look like? What does that center of gravity look like? And the simple answer is right here, what we saw in chapter 2 of uh, Philippians, that Jesus is a humble, he, he, he lived a humble, obedient life. Humble obedience. That is the center of gravity for Jesus. And he lived in such a way, perfect way, that if we live in that way, then you can answer all those questions with a resounding yes. Humble obedience because of what Jesus has done. And instead of reading this text over again, particularly verse 6 through 11, let me just summarize it this way. If we had time to unpack every word and verse, well, you'll find that it is rich Christology. That is the understanding and the study of Jesus with a lot of Old Testament echoes in those verses. Again, it's a hymn. It is poetry that the early church combined so that they will never forget it. And, and Adam, Genesis 1 through 3 is in there. The suffering servant in Isaiah 4, chapters 40 through 55 is, is in there. And essentially, if you put all that together, you'll see that Jesus was pre-existent. He was with God even before time began. Unlike Adam, opposite of Adam, who wanted glory, that's why he uh, uh, ate of the fruit, Jesus did the total opposite by taking off his glory and became a servant to all humanity, ultimately and in humble obedience, going to the cross. Jesus was obedient to the Father by going on this death to the Roman execution on the cross. But ironically, it is through the death of the cross that God's power and grace came alive. The Messiah, his shameful death had been reversed. Why? Because he didn't stay dead. Resurrection happened, and now God has exalted this Jesus, king of all, such that, quoting Isaiah 45, that, that, that given the name and all creation will recognize that Jesus is Lord, that every knee will bow down and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And this poem uh, expresses St. Paul's conviction of who Jesus is. He's not just a good teacher, but he is Lord. And this is how Christians are called to live. If you get that, and I went through it real quick, but, but that is the center of gravity of Jesus. And if you get that, not only in your mind and in your heart, then we live it out consistently with that good news that Jesus has given out because he lived it out perfectly. And we get to live it out with humility and confidence that leads to obedience. And many of Paul's, uh, St. Paul's letters, um, not only in Philippians and Colossians, but other letters that he wrote, two-thirds of New Testament he wrote, much of those letters tells the church to do this, don't do that, stop this, stop doing this, quit it, you know. A lot of prescriptions of what the church should do because the church has to get disciplined that way. But this book, Philippians, is very different. And even Ephesians, I would argue, uh, it doesn't do that. It, it, it is colored with favor. This is a book of joy. Why? 
because this is what a maturing church looks like. Because in the church of Philippi, not perfect at all, but there were people in the church who got it and who were uh, living this life like that, and they were maturing in their faith. And St. Paul is in prison. He's about to die, whether he's die or not. He's looking at the Philippian church, and he's happy with them because they're living out the gospel. If you go back, and just this is real quick, this is kind of important. The church began, you can find this in, in Acts chapter 16. The church began with uh, three people, a Jewish fashionista. She's a businesswoman. Her name is Lydia, remember? And she, uh, she brought uh, uh, the finance back into the church. And there was a demon-possessed uh, slave girl. She got free from demon possession, and she became a Christian. And there was a blue-collar ex-GI, right? He was a, a Roman, sent, Roman guard, and he was working, and, and he became a Christian. And the church started with these kind of folks, the diversity in socioeconomic background and uh, uh, in Philippi. And now St. Paul is writing this uh, 10, maybe 10 to 15 years after, since the church was planted, this young girl, the demon-possessed girl who's been freed, is she married? <laughs> Does she have children now? You wonder uh, how she's doing with her faith. Think about Lydia. Is she still not only a businesswoman, but is she, is she still faithful? Is she still giving and serving, or has she sold out, right? The jailer, is he still rough around the edges? <laughs> Does he still use foul language, or is he growing now in the gospel? Could he possibly be an elder in the church by now? We don't know these questions, but in St. Paul's mind, they're not listed here in this book, but something good is happening. And in, and in the sense of what he is saying, they are maturing. They did mature because Jesus was the center of gravity for those people in the church in Philippi. How do we know this? Uh, if you look at the end of chapter 2, verses 19 on, you think about Timothy Timothy, he didn't come from Philippi, but, but he was a, an example. He says, I send Timothy to you. Go hang out with him. Look at Timothy. He loves Timothy. He, you know, he's like a Christ figure, if you will. Young guy, but his, his humble obedience. He's serving not only Paul, but he will serve you, the church, just like what Jesus required, and he's doing it gratefully. But another person in verse 25, Epaphroditus is important because you know what happened when they found out that St. Paul was in prison, the church collected money and the funds so that they could support uh, uh, St. Paul in, in prison. So he had a preferoditis go all the way to Rome. Because if you're in jail, if, you got, if you're in jail by the Roman uh, army, they don't give you three square meals a day. They don't let you exercise, and they don't let you kind of, you know, study and get your law degree while you're in jail. You know what I mean? You're in a dungeon. And if you don't have people supporting you, you don't get meals, you die. And so that's how it was. And then when, when the church in Philippi heard about that, they sent Epaphroditus to go give him money, support him, give him food. And not only physical support, but emotional support. And Epaphroditus almost died doing that. He got sick. But he did it anyway, and, and Epaphroditus is an example of humble obedience. People in the church in Philippians who live that way. So that's why St. Paul looks at the church, and he's so happy. So I could, I could die now. <laughs> Look what Christ is doing in you. And the whole letter is full of joy. 
because of what Christ has done in the lives of the people in the church because they made Jesus the center of everything. So what should you do about this? How do you hear this message? What, what do we do? Let me go back to Chuck Colson. Some of you may know his story, some of you not. But um, Chuck Colson, um, he was, he was uh, in the Nixon, Nixon administration in the 70s. Uh, if you don't know anything about him, he had this dubity, dubious <laughs> reputation of being the brainchild of the Watergate scandal. Whereas uh, President Nixon gets to resign, Colson and uh, the other cronies got prison, got sentenced, so they went to prison. But it was in the federal jail where Chuck Colson found new life. In prison, his new life was birth uh, through a sacrifice that was made on his behalf. Not like kind of James Ryan kind of sacrifice, not a physical, from a physical war, but from a spiritual warfare, uh, from life and death, from heaven and hell, from Jesus and, and, and devil and demons. Chuck Colson got saved from that. And because Chuck Colson received the good news and he put Jesus at the center of gravity for his life, he didn't, number one, he didn't have to earn this new life. He got the gospel. So you know what he did after he got out? He lived consistently with the good news of the gospel. He gave up his politics. He gave up the academia. He gave up that 1% of the lifestyle of power and the influence. And you know what he did? He started the prison fellowship. <laughs> and I remember growing up listening to his prison fellowship uh, uh, before there was a podcast. It was a radio thing. And I, I really enjoyed listening to him. And he was a champion of Christianity. Like, no shame that Jesus is his God. He passed away. I forget how long ago, but he lived his life well. Isn't that nice? And I, and I tell you, I think about this, and I'm glad I, I don't have to go to prison to learn this. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Years ago, I came across, um, a lot of things happened, but, but essentially there was a book that I came across. It was called Halftime. I have it in my office, and I, and I taught this to some of the men's group. And uh, basically, halftime is this. Since we just came out of Super Bowl, you know, don't, those of you who have no, no idea about football, what happens is the first quarter, you know, first and second quarter, you play your game. You may be losing or whatever, but in halftime is important, not because of the halftime show, but because in halftime, the coach will get with you and say, ah, no, I don't know, <laughs> or encourage you or restructure your game plan so that the second half, you could win. So that's what halftime is. And that's the principle of this book. Bob Buford, uh, he wrote this. And, and as, after I studied this, and then I decided to do that. So I decided that I'm going to find out, put a year of when I'm going to die. So 2050, <laughs> this is not true. 2050, if that is the time, I told you I was obsessed with like time, right? <laughs> if 2050 is the year of my death, I don't know what month, what day, that's just too much, but approximately 20, if 2050 is when I'm gonna die, how am I gonna live, this is the second half of my life, by the way, how am I going to live for the rest of my life? So I recalculated here, and so from 2022 to 2050, well, I, actually, by 2050, I will be 82 years old uh, if I die at that moment. But from today, 
And if 2050 is still that date, I have 20 year, 28 years left. That's a long time, I think. Or maybe not, depending on what perspective. So, Lord willing, not me, I got I have 28 years left now, all right? So how am I going to use those remaining 28 years? Can I share with you my plan? It'll be real quick, I promise. This is kind of fun because I just re-edited it re recently. So it's been edited again, and so this is what I came up with. All right, so by 2030, which is eight more years or so, um, I'll serve as a senior pastor at S-City. I'll keep doing what I do. Ah, vision! <laughs> and we'll, God willing, multiply campuses. We'll integrate ethnic congregations, and, and, and we'll do these over the years. So I only have eight years with you guys, okay? So tolerate me for eight years. Now, when it's 2030, the plan is to make a transition. Hopefully, by that time, I'll, uh, we'll get our mall. Did I tell you about the mall? Anyway, that's a different story. We'll buy that property, and we'll bring all our campuses together, and we'll finally fulfill one of the visions of being a city on a hill. So we'll be doing that. So by 2030 comes up, I'll be transitioning into Mission 252, Heart and Soul, and all that stuff. So I'll, be, I'll still be with you, but I'm not going to lead this church necessarily. But I'm going to work with Mission 252. And, I'm gonna, and I want to develop the mission, the social, and the community arm of the church. I want to mobilize all of you to be entrepreneurs, profit, not-for-profit entrepreneurs, and so you can bless the needs of the community so you don't have to be stuck in boardrooms. <clears throat> and, uh, and in partnership with that city church. We're going to multiply this model to other cities in the nation, and we're going to go to different countries like Taiwan, woohoo, <laughs> and other parts of the world, and we'll continue to do what God has told me to do. So there's 2040 to 2050, about 10 more years. And I was just thinking, if Jesus doesn't take me by then, or, you know, he delays in coming, so what do I do the last 10 years? Well, I'll take a team of seniors, because I'll be a senior by then. Woohoo! And, and I'll get a bunch of retired folks. And guess what we'll do? Uh, we won't do parachuting, but we will go to the most dangerous parts of the war zones, future war zones. Afghanistan, hopefully, will be settled by then. But there will be other Afghanistans and Iraqs where Christianity and America are not welcomed. We'll go there. You know what we're gonna do? We're gonna do. Uh, we're gonna pray there. We're going to serve the poor. We're gonna play with their children and the orphans, and we're just gonna love the socks out of them. Well, they may not have socks. We'll give them socks. We'll love them. We'll just, and, and 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 the locals. We'll do life with them. If the other people hate us, they kill us. It's okay. We're gonna be die anyway. So it's like anyway. I'm sorry, honey. <laughs> Sounds kind of gruesome. <laughs> And, 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 you know, and, and, and the reason why I talk like this is because that sounds like St. Paul. He says, what does it matter? <laughs> if I die, I gain. If I'm still alive serving all these great people across the world, I win too. And Jesus still wins. Isn't that great? <laughs> anyway, am I, I'm way overdue time. But, you know, I, I just needed you to see this, you know. We need to... <laughs> I hope you have some kind of plan. I know you have a financial plan, retirement plan. You're set up. I know it. <laughs> Let's translate some of that energy to your life plan, to your spiritual life plan. Will it be consistent with the gospel in how you're going to live the remaining years of your life? 
don't want you to be stuck fighting about the carpet, color of this carpet. Please, if you do that, oh, anyway, that's a different message. Please, let's not do that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that uh, you do love us so much. You'll take uh, a guy like St. Paul and just turn him radical. And we need that radicalness too today. I do pray that you will maybe stir, stir some of our hearts so that we would have a life plan, a spiritual life plan. So that we could, because Jesus is the center of gravity for our lives, gosh, so much, so many things you could do through us. Would you do that? Even now, do that. Help us to restructure our lives because Jesus is the center. We sing about that. We, we rejoice in that. We thank God when people find that center. Now help us to live it consistently, Lord Jesus. Have mercy on us. In Jesus' name we pray.